I noticed today that we are out of sermon cards on our table out back. I wonder sometimes where they go. Like I always think I print a little too many, and then they're all gone in mid-November, halfway through the sermon card. So I'm going to print some more this week. But if you're tracking with the sermon card, perhaps you have noticed that the last several sermons have uh, been titled with a question. And so a few weeks ago, we asked the question, will you give praise to God based on Luke 17, the first half of Luke 17? And then last week, uh, we asked, will you see the kingdom? And as you, perhaps you tracked with that sermon, there was a double meaning with will you see the kingdom? Will you recognize that it's already in your midst? And will you go to the kingdom where you will see it forever? And then this week, our passage asks, will you humble yourself? A question that uh, Luke essentially was trying to get Theophilus to ask and to consider, am I marked by humility as I seek to follow Christ? And so that's what we're going to be studying today is Luke 18, verses 1 through 17, asking the question, will you humble yourself before God? So let me read verses 1 through 17 of Luke chapter 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. One of the most important parts about growing up is learning to do something yourself. So when you go from the point where you simply cry because you're hungry to being able to mutter some kind of phrase about macaroni and ease or something like that to where you know how to make your own macaroni and cheese and provide for yourself other ways like that. And so perhaps you've noticed this with your own children or nephews and nieces or grandchildren, the joy of watching them experience for the first time the sense that I can do this for myself. And it's a beautiful thing, but sometimes it gets a little turned around and 
a very young child, perhaps even a petulant child, as we all have been at certain times in our own lives, even as adults sometimes too, say, no, I can do it myself. And they don't want any help, but they don't know how to do it themselves quite yet. It's kind of like Cusco in my favorite movie, Emperor's New Groove, really the best movie ever made, where he basically says, I can get back to the palace by myself. And Pacha is like, no, you really can't. There are jaguars and cliffs and lots of other dangers. And Cusco has to figure out for himself that I really can't get back as a llama all the way back to the kingdom, back to the, the palace. We have different words for people like Cusco, for people like people who are uh, convinced that they can do something that they really can't. We often call someone like that a narcissist or uh, an, egocentric, uh, an egocentric person or simply arrogant or simply proud. People in our day, Christians in our day, often say, I don't need the rhythm of church life. I can do just fine. I had a conversation with a guy several years ago, several years ago saying that he didn't need to go to church, period, because he can worship God in nature better than he can inside of a building. It all sounds fine, except that the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Uh, but so some Christians may fall into that ditch. Perhaps many non-Christians in our society today would say, "I can define myself however I very well please." Yes, I was, excuse me, born a man, but I don't care. I'm the, identify myself as a woman, and so I'm going to, in so doing, throw my fist up at God and say, "I will be whoever I want to be." In our passage today, Jesus tells two parables. Two short stories that are designed to pack a punch. And then, as he has done so many times in Luke, he, in the third part of our passage, he's going to welcome people who seem, at least to his audience, like they don't deserve to be in his presence. They don't deserve his attention. And the message of this passage is that Jesus' followers are marked by genuine humility. Someone who cl- claims to be a Christian calls themselves a Jesus follower and maybe bears that flag, whatever that flag may look like, would say, I follow Jesus. But the way that other people can tell whether that's true is by their humility, by the way they lay down their lives for other people. All three sections of our passage today require humility. So how do we demonstrate humility in our lives as we seek to follow Jesus? We do so, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, by persisting in prayer. And you might initially think, what in the world does prayer have to do with humility? Or what does humility have to do with prayer? And I would simply say that failure to pray says we don't care. We think we can do it ourselves. I don't need any help. Or perhaps we don't believe God will answer. Well, that is arrogant as well, thinking we know how God's going to act. Or we think that God is indifferent or impotent or redundant in our lives. We think he may be indifferent in that he may know what's going on, but it's no bother to him. Perhaps it's the way we often are when we see someone changing their tire on the side of the road and we keep going 70 miles an hour and don't even give it a second thought. Perhaps we think of God that as, as being indifferent. Or we think of him as being impotent, as being powerless. God may care about my problems, but he's not able to do anything about it. Or perhaps we think that prayer is redundant because God himself is redundant. So praying to God is basically the same as trying all of our other options. It's not going to get us any further down the road if I pray. This would be sinful thinking. This would be arrogant thinking. 
And this is why we need humility, to persist in prayer. Jesus told this parable to the effect that his disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why do we lose heart when we pray? What does it look like to lose heart? It means we think there is no use in praying another time. I've prayed this prayer dozens of times, hundreds of times, countless times. And there's no visible effect. So why would I keep praying? That's what it means to lose heart. It's where you walk with a dejected look on your face, your shoulders slumped, saying there's no point in doing this anymore. This passage doesn't tell us what we should pray for, but I think we can get some clues as we, as we look at it. Specifically, this parable is about a woman who was seeking justice. Again, this is a story Jesus made up, so we don't have to ask when it says there's a certain city. What cities? Those are not questions we need to bother ourselves with. It just simply doesn't matter. He's just saying there's a normal human experience we can all envision really well. Just like the passage earlier in Luke where there was um, a person knocking on his friend's door late at night and saying, I need, a, you know, I need a place to sleep. I need a meal for my children. And he's like, look, dude, I'm in bed with my family. Like, Just leave us alone and let us sleep. But if the guy keeps knocking, he realizes I'm never going to go back to sleep if I don't give this guy his meal. So I'm going to go ahead and get it for him. This was back in chapter 11 or 12 or so. And so this woman is, is asking persistently, give me justice against my adversary. Unfortunately, she's asking it to someone who doesn't care. Maybe you can picture someone in your own life who fits that bill very well. Why doesn't he care? Because he doesn't care about what God says. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about what people think. He has no respect for man. And so Jesus himself describes that man in verse 2. The man describes himself that way in verse 4. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this woman will not stop asking, I'll get her off my case by giving her what she wants. Again, if you have small children or you ever have had small children or you have ever been a small child, you know what it means to ask persistently for something. And this widow is bothering her. Perhaps, and maybe, again, let's just fill out some details with our own imagination. Maybe her neighbor burned her garage to the ground. That's terrible. He should have to pay for that. He should have to pay for whatever was in that garage. And the judge doesn't care. Go build another garage. Go talk to somebody else. No, my insurance company's not helping. I think we should sue them. I don't care. No, really, like everything that was in there, my car, my lawnmower, my supplies, they're all gone. I don't care. And she keeps coming again. And finally, okay, fine. I don't care about those things. I don't care about you. I don't care about what God says about what to do in this situation. But even though I'm an unjust judge, I'm still going to give you what you want. I'm still going to give you justice. I'm still going to require that guy to rebuild your garage and get you another car and another lawnmower and more supplies. And Jesus, the Lord, in verse 6 says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Why is he unrighteous? Just simply as a way of saying an unjust judge. Someone who didn't care about justice, even though that's in his name. Justice so-and-so doesn't care about justice, so he's unrighteous. And Jesus says, if an unrighteous judge is going to listen because you persist, don't you think a righteous judge like God, is going to listen? Will God give justice to His elect, to His people, who cry to Him day and night? 
And I just want to pause and ask you this question. When was the last time you cried to God day and night? There are other things the Bible tells us we need to do day and night. Meditate on His Word day and night. This book of the law you shall meditate on day and night. Joshua 1.8, Psalm 1.2. Meditate on God's Word. Let it soak into the veins of your heart. But here, cry to God day and night because something is so important to you. And I just urge you to do that. There's a simple application where you can just draw right from the text. Cry to God day and night. What should you cry to Him for? Recognizing that a just God is going to give us what we ask for. In His way and in His time, but He does answer our prayers. What should we pray for? We should pray for God to be glorified in our lives and in our church. That has lots of different avenues you can go down just from that one request. You can pray for our elders to lead with wisdom, humility, kindness, gentleness, courage. You can pray that God will continue to make us an evangelistic congregation where we joyfully tell the truth to lost sinners. We can pray for spiritual maturity in our church. Pray that people will show up for our Bible studies and our book studies and our our Sunday school and so forth, and that they will learn to love God's Word more and walk in God's ways through those resources. You can pray faithfully for people you love to come to faith. And maybe that's the one where you're like, hmm, I've done that so many times. Yes, I love my child. Yes, I love my spouse. Yes, I love my parents or my grandparents or my cousin. There's no way that person's ever coming to faith. And I want to take a few moments here to read you a story that uh, nearly brought me to tears when I read this a few weeks ago. And I, I have sent this to some of you, and so perhaps it'll sound familiar, but this is written by a guy named Garrett Kell. He's a pastor in Virginia. We have a book on the resource table. It's white. It's called Pure in Heart. You should read it, and then you should give it to somebody else and let them read it and give it to somebody else. But Garrett Kell wrote about, on Halloween night in 1998, I threw a party in my apartment at Virginia Tech. So a student at Virginia Tech. I was 20 years old, and in the wildest season of my life, I had three female roommates and a live-in girlfriend, and I spent most of my spare time smoking weed, doing lines of cocaine, and drinking. I was geared up for a good time because the party was going to be epic. I invited an old friend from high school down for the weekend. Dave and I had played ball and partied together over the years, so I was excited to see him. I greeted Dave when he arrived and escorted him back to my room, proudly unveiling the welcome gifts I'd prepared. On my desk was a bag of weed and his favorite beer, and I told him I had a girl he could get to know for the weekend. But Dave didn't respond like I expected. Instead, he gently closed the door and sat on the bed. He looked me in the eyes and told me he didn't do those things anymore. He said he'd become a Christian. He now loved Jesus. And the reason he'd come to tell me that Jesus, the reason he'd come was to tell me that Jesus loved me too. I laughed him off. The next part of the story is very long. It's four pages long here. I'll skip through, but you're welcome to find it online. Essentially, he kind of came to rock bottom. Garrett Kell did. He opened up his Bible, the passage you read, he says, that freaked me out. So he closed the Bible, opened it to a different passage, read that, he says, that really freaked me out. A few weeks later, I was home on Christmas break doing a drug called ecstasy. Sometime after midnight, I became strangely sober and felt an overwhelming burden to call Dave. Dave came to my house, carrying his Bible, tears rolling down his cheeks. We sat down and I told him I needed to know more about God. He asked me if I knew what he was doing when I called him. 
He proceeded to tell me that when I called, he was doing the same thing he'd been doing every night since he left Virginia Tech, praying for me. Long story short, Garrett Kell got saved. He's a wonderfully faithful pastor in Virginia. We pray for their church occasionally. All that to say, why did he get saved? Because of the grace of God. Why else did he get saved? Because of the persistent prayer of a guy named Dave who got saved just before Halloween in 1998. And he loved his friend and he prayed for him every night. I would just encourage you to keep praying for those you love, that they will come to faith. We demonstrate humility by persisting in prayer, by being like the persistent widow. There's no shame in being like a persistent widow when it means crying to the judge of the earth to give justice speedily. Secondly, we demonstrate humility by owning your sinfulness. Owning your sinfulness. I wanted to use a word that was stronger than just acknowledging that you're a sinner. Take ownership for the fact that you are a rebel before God. In this section of our passage, we have Jesus telling us a second parable. And again, he tells us why he tells this parable. The first one is, so you'll always pray and not lose heart. The second parable is, because there are some people around here, and maybe he just kind of like glances his eyes around the crowd, who think a lot of themselves. And look at other people with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the most righteous of the righteous people. The people who told other people what it looks like to be a Christian. So they said. The second one was a tax collector. The worst of the worst. If you're talking about the contrast of who you'd rather spend a day with, you'd rather spend a day with the Pharisee. He'd probably be a little annoying by the end of the day. But it'd be better than a tax collector who's going to be ripping you off the whole time. And Jesus instead turns this passage on its head and surprises his audience by saying, actually, the last are the first and the first are the last. The unexpected one is the hero. The tax collector, this wretched bum, is going to be the one who exemplifies what it looks like to be a holy, humble person. So the Pharisee prays words that essentially we sing about once a month or so here when we sing, not in me. Let me read you the words to this song, at least to some of the words. No list of sins I have not done. Have you ever made that list? Make a list in your head of what you haven't done that you feel really good about yourself because you haven't done. No list of virtues I pursue. I read my Bible 743 days in a row. I memorized the book of Acts. No list of those I am not like. I'm not like that guy, and I'm not like that girl. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that girl. None of these things can earn myself a place with you. And listen to this. See if this sounds familiar. Oh God, be merciful to me. The guy who wrote this song wrote it based off of Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. It's a wonderful song. I'm so glad we sing it regularly. I'm going to stop reading the words there for sake of time, but you can look it up online, you can sing it online, you can download the song, whatever else you want to do, not in me. There's an even older hymn that is essentially based off of this passage. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Do you feel the load of your sin today? The awful load of guilt before God? You can't cry about it enough. 
that, that song I just read a second ago, no recitation of the truth. No saying the Apostles' Creed every other Sunday can make God forgive me of my sins. But my righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. The New Testament is full of one another commands. Love one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, which means put up with people's annoying tendencies over and over again in your church family. Do you know which one is not in the Bible? Compare yourself with one another. That's never a Bible command. You should see, am I holier than that person? Or maybe we're kind of measuring up. That's not in the Bible. Stop doing it. That's a good command right there. Just stop it. Probably not most biblical, but we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church believe in what the Bible teaches called progressive sanctification. The Bible never uses that exact phrase. It's a theological phrase condensing what the Bible teaches, which simply means that over time, God makes us more and more holy as we seek to walk with Him by grace through faith. We exert effort. We exert repentant effort. We continue to come back to the well of forgiveness again and again, but God gradually makes us conform to Christ by a work of the Holy Spirit as we expose ourselves to the Word of God with the people of God for the glory of God. This, uh, this passage here has in it two significant theological terms for us. One is in verse 11, so you have this kind of hypocritical prayer of the Pharisee in verse 11, then, and in verse 12, he talks about what he does. So here's who I'm not like, here's what I've done, and I'm not he's a terrible kind of person, but the tax collector, who everybody listening to this would have said was the terrible person, was standing far off. He wasn't even going to let himself get into the heart of the temple like the Pharisee did, making himself uh, a public display of himself. Instead, he stands off and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what we have in English, God, be merciful, is essentially, God, propitiate your wrath. Maybe that doesn't sound like a whole lot of wonderful truth, but let me just unpack that for a second. The Old Testament sacrificial system was based on the fact that we serve a God who is full of wrath towards sin. And somehow that wrath has to be appeased, has to be atoned for. Our sin has to be atoned for. And God does that through a sacrifice that, that, that appeases His wrath. And what the Bible says in about three or four really important passages is that Christ is a propitiation for our sins. He's the one. He is the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. He's the one who, when He shed His blood, it took away the wrath of God. It covered the wrath of God so that you don't have to anymore. And what this jerk what other people would have said was the jerk in the passage. What he's doing is saying, Lord, propitiate your wrath on my behalf. That's what it means for God to be merciful. You don't want to bear the wrath of God on your own. Eddie prayed that based on Habakkuk 1. Christ has borne the wrath of God on the cross. And we celebrate that every time we take the Lord's Supper. When we drink the juice, it's a reminder that Christ drank the wrath of God to the dregs. The other significant theological term here, besides propitiation, the God, that God, uh, God's wrath is satisfied by Christ, is when we read in verse 14 that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. And so we have this important theological term of justification that's especially clear in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, but 
Here we have it as well that this man went back home declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified. We're declared righteous by grace through faith. And so this man went home not because he had checked all the boxes of holiness. He clearly didn't do that. Not because he had earned up enough credit the way that you earn credit on your Chipotle app or your Starbucks app or your Chick-fil-A app and you get rewards and you get credit because of things you do or things you buy. That's not why this guy went home justified. This is clearly a statement that God has declared him to be righteous, not because of what he did, but because of what Christ did. And so that's how we can be declared righteous as well. When our faith is in Christ alone, we become a child of God. That's adoption. We have God's wrath satisfied. That's propitiation. And we are declared righteous. That's justification. And as a result of all that, we have progressive sanctification. All the shun words, right? Progressive sanctification and justification and propitiation. All of these come about because of the work of Christ. Someone who thinks highly of themselves and what they've done spiritually and what they've accomplished for God might think to themselves, well, God would be unjust to judge me for my sin. It would be unjust of Him. And the right perspective for all of us would be, no, it would be utterly just for God to judge all of us for one sin, not the thousands that we've done in our lives. And this is where Martin Luther had such an issue before he became a believer of just wrestling through, like, is it just for God to forgive sins? And this is what Romans 1 is is dealing with, with Paul working through that there. Is God just to forgive sins? And the glorious answer in the gospel is, yes, he's just to forgive sins because he justly poured his wrath out on Christ. And so if this is all new to you, perhaps I'm using words you've never heard of before, like propitiation or justification, and you just want to ask some questions about that, please sit with me at the banquet downstairs or catch me at the door before you leave or anything else, and we can talk through this. I would love to get together with you this week to talk through this more of how you can know that your sins are forgiven, that your guilt is covered, that your sins are atoned for. A comment that says, well, God would be unjust to judge me for my sin, exposes that you don't understand God or sin or yourself. You don't know how holy God is. Last summer when our family drove out to Yellowstone, we were driving through the Badlands in South Dakota. And Clarissa got teared up as we saw the Badlands for the first time. You would think we have this very emotional family. I don't think of myself as being emotional, but um, cry nonetheless in public. But as we, as we drive into the Badlands, my wife gets a little bit teary-eyed going, it's more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. And it's just brown, weird, like layers of dirt, but it's beautiful. You don't know how holy God is. You don't know how beautiful God's holiness is if you can say, no, God would be unjust to judge me for my sin. You don't know how sinful you are if you would say God would be unjust for judging me. It's like you holding up what you think is a white shirt and you buy a brand new white shirt and you put it next to it like, oh my, I used to wear that in public? That's how sinful we are when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God. Here in verse 14, a verse that Jesus, a quote that Jesus has already given us elsewhere in Luke. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, who says, look at how spiritual I am, you will be brought low. And all of you who says, look how sinful I am, you will be exalted. 
Again, the, the principle in Luke is that the first are last and the last are first. There's this unexpected reversal throughout Luke. So how do you demonstrate humility? By persisting in prayer, by owning your sinfulness, and by maintaining childlike faith. That's verses 15 through 17. Maintaining childlike faith demonstrates humility. I do want to point out, just briefly, because I'm a pastor of a Baptist church, that there's no water mentioned anywhere in verses 15 through 17. So as uh, Andy Davis jokingly said while he was here, there are lots of passages that talk about baptism but don't talk about children, or they talk about children that don't talk about baptism. And this is one of those passages. And I only say that because our dear Presbyterian friends, who I love and who I know many of, do look at this passage as kind of like, see, Jesus accepted children and welcomes them to his kingdom. Not quite. Okay, not quite, and, and we'll get to exactly what I mean by the not quite part there. But in verse 15, we see that people are bringing their babies to Jesus so he might touch them. This was common practice. There's a rabbi, maybe even a famous rabbi, passing through our town. Let's go get the, you know, the idea of a waterless baptism, of like a child dedication, by letting this really important spiritual figure lay his hands on our baby. Okay, that's fine. You know, no sin necessarily there, but people were bringing their babies to Jesus, but we just need to back up and ask ourselves again, who were the important people in Jesus' day? Or maybe we could just go ahead and turn it upside down. Who were the least important? Let's start at the top. Babies. Children. You know, that that old mantra of children are best seen, not heard, was magnified by 10,000 in the first century. They were just worthless people. Babies were often better just left on the side of the road, to die because they were so worthless. Then after that, you get into other categories of people. And what Luke has been doing throughout the book of, uh, throughout this gospel is turning it on its head. Here's who's important. Children, women, prostitutes, outcasts, prisoners, and on and on and on. And all the people that people was like, no, let's not get in with the, the tax collectors. They're the important ones. They're the exalted ones. And who are the humbled ones? The people who think a lot of themselves and have exalted themselves, and they are the ones who are brought down low. And the disciples seem to think that their job was to be in the secret service. Like, no, 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 no. Let's not get these babies close to Jesus. He's way too important for these small creatures. They make weird noises and weird sounds, and let's just keep them at bay. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Let them come. And he tells us why he wants the the children to come. Don't hinder them. For to people like these, that's what it means for to such, to people like these belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, does not enter into the kingdom by grace, through faith, through repentance, will not enter it. Everybody, again, let's go back to our passage last week, everybody that Jesus was talking to and that Luke was writing to wanted to be in the kingdom. This category of, eh, I don't care about God, I don't care about eternity, that's just a, a very foreign concept in this book. Everybody wanted to be in the kingdom, and what Jesus is saying is, if you want in that kingdom, you become like a child. What's it mean to have childlike faith? For one, uh, this, uh, this comment here, the way one source put it was, children are a picture of those whose simple trust illustrates what faith is all about. The remark illustrates how everyone is important to God, even those whom others regard as insignificant. So through childlike faith, someone receives the kingdom. I love, as a father, 
walking through a crowded place with my children and completely at their volition, at their initiation, they grab my hand. We're in a crowded place. They don't feel safe for a second and they grab my hand. Why are they doing that? What are they expressing grabbing my hand? Childlike faith. They're saying, I'm not going to make it through here without your hand. Childlike faith says, if I were still a baby, I would not be eating unless someone fed me. I would not be moving myself around before I can crawl or walk unless somebody picked me up and took me there. Childlike faith is just saying, I am completely at your disposal. I'm in your hands. You have to take care of me. And in salvation, we trust Christ to save us because He alone is capable to bring us to God. He is the only way to God because He's the only one sent by God to bring us all the way home. So perhaps at this point, you're, you're asking yourself this question. Like, okay, I want to demonstrate humility. I see that I, I show my humility through my prayer, through owning my sinfulness, and through my childlike faith, but I still consider myself to be a proud person. I think people could rightly accuse me of being proud. What are some ways I can seek to develop humility? And I would say, if that's a question you're asking, that is a wonderful question to ask. And so the first thing I would say is to make worship services non-negotiable because by being with each other, you're saying, I can't follow Christ on my own. Like, my spiritual input is not enough. I need the input of other people, their, their channels and their, what they pour into my life when we're together. I need that to grow in Christ-likeness. So make worship services non-negotiable. Serve in children's ministry because they make weird sounds and they make weird smells and you can help them and in so doing, humble yourself. Think of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. We often think humility is, uh, is thinking less of myself. No, no, it's actually just being more aware of other people around you. Being aware that you don't know everything or have all the answers. So think less, uh, I'm sorry, think of yourself less. I just completely counteracted what I was trying to say. Think of yourself less. Perhaps you have some friends that you could say, you could ask them, do I ever come across as cocky? Do I ever come across as arrogant, as a know-it-all? If I do, when? How do I do that? And if you're truly a friend with that person and that person is truly a friend with you, hopefully they'll give you the honest truth. And hopefully the answer is no. You don't ever come across as cocky. Actually, you're one of the humblest people I know. Those are the kinds of friends you want who are willing to tell you that. But most likely, a really good friend is going to say, well, okay, this is is how you come across as, as a bit arrogant. Ask other people good questions and listen to their answers. Humble people make other people feel like the most important person in the room. If you're in a conversation with them, they feel like you are the most important person. And then finally, as far as trying to develop humility, I want to urge you to fast forward your life 30 years and rewind your life by 30 years. So for some of us, if you fast forward your life by 30 years, where are you going to be? For most of us, physically speaking, we're going to be in the grave, right? I saw a t-shirt yesterday in a picture, so I didn't actually see the shirt, but I saw a picture of a shirt that had four little logos on it. And all it said was, this is your life. And the first logo was of a baby lying on its back. And the second logo was of someone, you know, like climbing a mountain. And the third logo was of a person hunched over with a a cane. And the fourth logo was a picture of a gravestone. This is your life. And I just want to encourage you to fast forward 30 years. Are you still going to be alive in 30 years? If not, what do you have to be proud of? You are going to turn to dust. 
Were you alive 30 years ago? I was eight, living like 10 minutes away from here, playing, trying to figure out how to hit a baseball. Like, do I really have anything to be proud of for what I was 30 years ago? Um, for many of us, when we consider that, okay, 30 years at best, I'm going to be in a nursing home surrounded by people who aren't even alive yet. They haven't even gone to nursing school yet. That's a humbling proposition. Other people are going to be cleaning up after me, putting my feeding tube in my mouth 30 years from now. We all have the same life story. You were a helpless baby. You got strong. You got weak. And you died. Everyone is on the same playing field. And so, if you would say, well, 30 years ago were my best years, actually, well, then I would just say, rewind 80 years, or fast forward 80 years, and then we'll have the same conversation. Pride would say, I'm the most important person, or I'm the godliest person, I'm the wisest person in the room. Pride says, I don't need you or your input. Pride says, I'm right, and therefore I don't value what you have to say. And humility says, everything I have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do you think you did that when all it was was a gift from God? We need humility to live the Christian life. We need humility to start the Christian life. Do you know that salvation? Asking God to forgive you of your sins and repentant faith is itself an act of humility. Baptism requires humility. So if you say, I am a Christian, but I've never been baptized since I became a Christian, it takes humility, but I want to urge you to take that step of humility for the sake of developing humility, if nothing else, though there are a lot of other things good about it as well. Church membership requires humility, the process of becoming a church member, and the act of living out as a church member, living out the Christian life. Marriage requires humility to confess your sins to each other, to ask for forgiveness again for the same ways you've stumbled or been selfish or left the plate on the counter instead of in the sink or whatever else, and you ask for forgiveness again and again. And it takes humility for a marriage to thrive. But is it not worth the investment? It takes humility to simply live the Christian life because we are by nature children of wrath who have rebelled against God sought to go our own way, and are only God's children because of the gift of faith He has given us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Word and the power of salvation that You have accomplished in so many lives, including Garrett Kells. And we thank You for his ministry and, and pray for their church in Virginia today. But we thank You even closer to home for the power of your word at work in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own church family. We pray that you would watch over our souls, that we would be people who move toward one another in humility rather than pull away and, and tuck ourselves into our turtle shells and desire to be free of conflict or free of being interrogated. We pray that we would be willing to have humble conversations and, and that we would make other people feel like they are the most important in the room. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.